to your Bible, custom designed to your Bible reading plan and weekly podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resident Church. And I'm here, as always, with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. And hopefully you enjoyed the reading what is almost the final section of Jeremiah. Uh, we'll only leave you one chapter for next week, but uh, Jeremiah as well is getting into the book of Hebrews. And so... Um, yeah, and so with this home stretch, uh, you probably saw some uh, repetition, particularly around the judgments of our surrounding countries. But before we get there, uh, we initially see uh, kind of pick up uh, right at the uh, this crew that is left in in Jerusalem, wondering if they should flee to Egypt around um, the fact that Ishmael, this guy killed a bunch of people and they're worried about the Babylonians. And so they're trying to make a decision. They go to Jeremiah to get his opinion, though they seem to obviously not really care that much about his actual opinion. Um, but they tell him, Hey, whatever you say to us, Jeremiah will do. And the verdict comes in and Jeremiah is like, look, stay in Jerusalem. It's going to go well. Don't flee to Egypt. The same thing we've heard uh, like a thousand times over. Don't go to Egypt. But, um, and, and Jeremiah, even in this moment, it's sort of like, but I don't think you're going to listen to me. You never really listened to me before. So I don't ha- have high expectations of you guys. Yeah, this is a pattern we see. We see it in the Ten Commandments when Moses says it and Israel's like, whatever you say, we're going to do. And then we know they don't do it. And we see it happening here. And I think it's probably pretty close to our own lives as well. We seek God's wisdom or prayer about things like a relationship or where we should live or you know what we should do for a career or even little things. And we say, God, whatever you say, we will do. But then we kind of just end up doing what we feel like doing. Um, and I think it causes us to really challenge our belief. Like, do I really believe that God's will for me is his best? Do I really believe that I was designed to worship God in such a way that obedience is going to be my greatest joy and satisfaction, even if it means challenge? Yes, I think Jeremiah's lying and they decide to go to Egypt anyways. Uh, And Jeremiah goes with them. It likely, I think, implies that he's sort of taken into it. And then he does some sort of a sort of performancey art prophecy here. He places a bunch of stones at the the steps of one of the sort of Pharaoh temple shrines. And uh, it says Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he basically says, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come here. He's going to destroy everything. He's going to sit on a throne above these stones. Yeah, so even Nebuchadnezzar is going to get Egypt. Yep. And once again, there's judgment for their idolatry. Uh, we start kind of seeing just how backwards this group is really becoming. And and Jeremiah stay here just telling them, look, this will be fine if you stay in Judah, but they're just not listening. And and he's pointing out they're going to repeat the, their history down in Egypt. But at some point, it seems like there's a switch, and all the all the people are like, start worshiping the Egyptian gods, and they even start saying things like, hey, maybe God um, abandoned us in Jerusalem because we we stopped we stopped worshiping the Egyptian gods. Maybe that was the problem, and we just need to. Right, right, correctly worship the Egyptian gods, and Jeremiah is just like, Fine, if you want to stay here and worship these gods, uh, you can stay here and never return, and you'll die by war or famine. And good luck. <laughs> yeah, and think back here to Exodus. I mean, think back here to the plagues and how Israel left Egypt to worship one God and one God alone. And so in Israel returning to Egypt and starting to worship Egyptian gods, we're seeing this sort of reversal of salvation history and that they are returning to slavery, even though God led them out of slavery. Yeah, there's, there's a kind of cleansing process that the Babylonian captivity is meant to have. And Jeremiah has been saying that like, look, don't put up a fight, let them take you into captivity. And like there's, there's sort of a, God wants to bring you through this as both his judgment and his refinement. Mm -hmm. And this crowd's like, 
ah, we don't want to do that. We're going to go to Egypt. And so there's definitely some harsh words from, from Jeremiah being like, look, like whether you stay in Jerusalem or whether you end up in captivity, those are really your options, not go to Egypt. And so uh, Jeremiah just has harsh words for them as if they're trying to avoid what God's trying to accomplish uh, through the Babylonian uh, captivity. And then uh, we're reminded of a message to Baruch uh, back uh, back when Jeremiah is dictating to him. And that um, Baruch, he, he sort of rem- remembers this moment where Baruch is complaining about suffering and things like that. And and the message is, well, it's not necessarily going to get better, but Baruch is going to survive it and God's going to finish what he's started. Yeah. And God reminds him that like Baruch is suffering. It's he's lamenting his call and many of us can do that at times. Yep. Uh, but God's suffering is greater and Baruch will find a reward. So this, uh, this feels very connected to what we're going to be reading about and, and talking about in Hebrews as well. And then we move into these long sections of uh, kind of poetic language around all the judgment around all these different places. Um, I, I don't know if we're going to go into each one and all the details. Um, th- there's definitely some symbolism. There's a lot of symbolism in this language. Uh, things like the Nile being invoked and there's this bomb, but there's not going to find that bomb or um, they mock the, the bull God of Apis. And it's like a cow who gets stung by a Northern fly and then suddenly becomes crazy, slithering like a snake, flattened like a forest all this, this sort of poetic language, but it's really just about Egypt's humiliation at the hands of the Babylonians. And, um, and there's promises once again, they're kind of sprinkled throughout. God's going to, God's going to free them from captivity, captivity. God's going to destroy these nations and the people will return. And then we get kind of this laundry list of the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, all these different groups that are the surrounding nations and how Babylon and God is bringing judgment to them. Yeah, I think a couple of things for us to remember as we read through list after list of judgment. I mean, we've been kind of drowning in judgment readings for the last few months now in general. Uh, is first of all, what judgment means for us on this side of the cross. We know that judgment has been completed, but Christ bore the wrath of our sin. And the judgment that was meant for us went on him so that we can be cleaned and cleansed and have right standing before God. And so um, we get to be that kind of that remnant of Jacob and we get to fear not because we know uh, where the judgment has gone. And I think the other thing for us to remember as we look through God's judgment on Moab and Ammon and Eden, all these different things, is that God is the only one who is good. Yahweh is the only one who's good. So these other nations that are worshiping other gods are doing and working evil. It can feel kind of difficult or brutal reading God's continual judgment on basically everyone, but God is judging wickedness and destruction that again is likely causing the most harm to vulnerable people and people without a voice. And so his judgment is just, and sometimes it may be hard for us to feel like that, but if you step back and think about the brutality of these nations on different individuals, I think we will understand and honor God's judgment in a way that celebrates the goodness of God and the way he cares for all people. Yeah. And, and, and there's no good guys in the story. I mean, I think that's important too in, in that it's not like mm-hmm. Israel's great and all these other yeah. countries get judged. Like there, there was a lot of chaos going on amongst all these nations and yeah, the, the, the way the idolatry got practiced, the way, um, they were treating, uh, particularly the, those more, um, 
uh, oppressed people that that a lot of these countries got sort of shook the playing board in a, in a way if all the countries are like these like a like a giant game got kind of shook it because everybody was not obeying the rules to go okay like we need a reset um, and and that's kind of what's happening here but it's not through the it's not through a flood it's not the Noah story it's a very different kind of uh, reset that, that mm. sort of God's doing uh, through the Babylonian captivity and and you get these great moments you you get like jeremiah even even in the midst of of moab and moab has not been the greatest neighbor to israel but even jeremiah has these moments where he sort of seems to almost weep over them too and and he still is like just mourning a little bit of god's judgment over all the things uh, even even over israel's enemies and so yeah you read through a bunch of them like i said i don't i don't know if you want to highlight That's any good. other pieces um but the most important is by chapters 50 and 51 these these two chapters and, and 100 verses worth of it um we get judgment upon babylon uh, which is probably the thing that every all the listeners were sort of waiting it's like all oh, my neighbors yes like that's fine that, that they're getting judged too and they're getting judged too but what's going to happen to babylon these these awful people that have shown up to town and babylon's going to be judged and it's really spelled out and um israel's going to return like like lost sheep they're going to be shepherded back like by by yahweh um and and babylon's going to experience this sort of devastation this uninhabitable place that's going to be left after god's done with it and just like god punished the assyrians with babylon babylon's going to be punished by another nation in the persians and so um what babylon has done to others will ultimately still be done to them too and so um that that's sort of the message that's there of going like and in some ways a, a good response to listeners who are like but what about like yes god is giving judgment upon all these nations for our idolatry but babylon has a bunch of idolatry too and now the listener can go oh so god is going to deal with that too and that's important like god's not ignoring the sins of babylon either yeah and i think we see this really strategically placed at the end of the book of jeremiah we have israel and judah also within this fall of babylon there's a promise that they will be restored to the everlasting covenant and of course that everlasting covenant again points us to christ the messiah yeah and and there's there's kind of a pickup on some of the pick word pictures that we've seen that that god's going to use babylon as a cup of wine uh, in terms of getting all the other nations drunk drunk in terms of the judgment but now god's going to take that cup and smash it to the ground this this very idea that gets kind of to its fruition at the end of this book and it's just a reminder, particularly in chapter 51, that like the idolatry is really the problem and God's going to punish it. And um, he encourages the Israelites just to kind of set their mind towards Jerusalem. Like like that is where we're heading. And so Jeremiah wraps up saying, I've, I've written this and given it to, to Sarah, um, and he's going to take the scroll, read it in Babylon, and throw it into the river. And it's going to sink to the bottom, just like Babylon's going to sink to the bottom. And so, um, yeah, you kind of get a, a a kind of a, a really positive wrap up to this whole Babylon is going to be destroyed and ultimately we're going to return home. Yeah. And we see this total sovereignty and work of God in all of this. God has done initiated and worked it all in order that all may see his work and glorify his name. So we come back to this idea of even Genesis 12, three being blessed to be a blessing and God's work to glorify his name among all people. And in Jeremiah's kind of last prophetic word, he's like, all right, I've done it. And now we're finished. Let's jump to New Testament. Uh, we get to the book of Hebrews, and it's certainly a book with a much more complicated backstory. Um, it's really one of the only New Testament books where we, we have almost no 
true guess of exactly who the author is. Uh, it's unlikely Paul. There's a lot of guesses of Apollos or Luke or Barnabas or Timothy Clement. There's even Priscilla has been thrown around that, um, that, that maybe the author is not named because it was a woman. And as opposed to at that time that the book might've been dismissed if it was found out stuff like that. And so, um, but it's likely an acquaintance of Paul. Um, there's definitely some Pauline language that gets kind of sprinkled throughout, uh, their understanding of the old Testament is pretty sophisticated, but their Greek is also sophisticated. So, um, they are likely a Hellenized Jew. They're, they're likely a Greek influenced kind of Jew. This is um, a more sophisticated language than some of the other letters we've dealt with. Um, and, and many people have put in a category where it's likely a sermon uh, put into written form. There's, there's a few phrases towards the end of the letter that are really only used around kind of spoken delivery of, of a message. And so uh, some will, will put it in that category that it just doesn't follow a letter format and almost follows more a sermon format. Uh, and the crowd, uh, we're not totally sure either. So this is one of the harder books to really do context with because we don't know exactly who the author is and we're not totally sure who the crowd is. Likely, uh, they seem to, to understand uh, the, the, the Old Testament well enough that the author uh, assumes a lot. So they're likely Jewish converts of some sort um, and they're likely in some city con- um um, context from some of the the struggles that that get listed in the books, um, they're faced persecution of some sort, uh, and they're suffering, uh, and some are starting to leave. Uh, it seems like the church, or maybe shrink back. Uh, some have stopped gathering with the church, and so um, there's definitely some uh, addressing that throughout the letter of what is suffering, what 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 does it look like maybe to, for these people to fall away, and um, sort of encouragement to to kind of keep at it, keep going. Um, and so, and, and the biggest driver theologically, then it's that's some of the practical teaching, but the theological are how Jesus is the better version of so many things and particularly related to the old covenant and even more so for him to be like just the best high priest, like compared to other priestly duties. Um, I'll include a, a link of sort of an outline. Um, it, it is very layered, but I think it covers most of the major pieces of the letter, um, and understanding how Jesus is the better and, uh, of different things and how the, how the author's actually organizing those thoughts and not just saying, not just being like, let me think of what might be next and better because there's a lot of therefores. There's a lot of building up as this letter goes. And so um, making sure that we kind of see what the author might be doing and, and sort of laying out these groundworks only to kind of turn around on it and, and, and unpack it that much more. Yeah, so one of the thoughts around this letter is that it was written to Christians who were maybe experiencing persecution and were thinking, hey, maybe I can just slip back to the Jewish way of life and kind of fly under the radar under a sort of Jewish protection. And this writer is saying it is not as good. And so as the author goes through these different arguments of Jesus is better than all these different things, he or she closes each argument with a sort of warning and encouragement to not fall away. So there's a huge emphasis on perseverance, a huge emphasis on this efficiency of Christ in this letter. So look for some of those patterns as you read through it and see, you know, when we get or when you get to each of these different warnings or reminders, look back on what the argument is from the author of why we should continue to persevere. And we get kind of one of the most grandiose openings, uh, I think, in, in a really good way. I mean, this, the author um, 
like I said, this is more sophisticated writing and it's more crafted. And uh, some of the language here in this opening is just brilliant. And, um, and, and sort of the opening statement of in these days, God's like, God has spoken to us in the past, but now God is speaking to us now. And it's through Jesus. Jesus is the way that God is speaking to us now, which builds uh, something that the author continues to do where we'll get to pay careful attention and to hear his voice. And don't be dull of hearing that, that in Jesus, God, God is speaking to the world, and and we get language like he is the exact uh, character. That's the the the, the, the Greek there. It's the word character, the exact character or the nature of the nature of God. And so, um, I think the argument there is: you want to see God, you want to see who God is, you need to look no further than Jesus. That Jesus mm-hmm. is that, and um, and and maybe in the past we had hints of what God's like, but now we get to see truly who God is in this human and in Jesus. And so um, there's language around his divinity, like the, everything was created through him. Um, and he upholds it all by his word. There's past, present, future. There's all sorts of stuff going on uh, in this opening kind of stuff, this, this, this introduction. Yeah, this initial chapter, or like I guess the first part of the chapter, really focuses on how... Jesus in the new covenant is better than this old covenant. The old covenant was made by angels. Deuteronomy 33 talks about how angels came, but this new speaking is through God's son who is superior to the angels. And I think of how so much of what we've read in the old Testament is about how God cannot be seen or touched or understood because he's so holy and so far beyond us. But the author here is saying, basically, do you want to get to know and understand God? Look at his son. This is the image of God. He is the image of God in the best way for us to understand God. And not only this, but the author immediately moves to Christ's work, how he upholds the universe by the word of his power and how he made purification for our sins. And he sat down to rule and even think back to Old Testament priests. They couldn't sit down because their work was never done, but Christ's work is done. So anyway, even the first three verses of this book correct our our understanding and perspective on Christ and should leave us in awe and wonder at all that he is and all that he has done. Yeah, and, and we definitely see the author unpack this idea that Jesus is superior to angels. And as a reminder, both in Hebrew and in Greek, the word angels is also the word messengers. And so um, those that have brought the message. And uh, it's interesting because as, as the opening said, like God is speaking now through Jesus. And so we have a better messenger, a, a better bringer of the message than the one that we had in the past through the angels, through the messengers. And, and so Jesus is that. And, and the author includes these several brilliant sort of Old Testament tie-ins to sort of really unpack that this Messiah, this King, because uh, understanding that Jesus might've had this, this King Messiah identity was not as much of a problem. Understanding that it was more than that, that he was, he was this anointed one and he was also the, the, the chief prophet and also divine. And also like all those things were, were, were important. And so the author includes even some of that breakdown of going, pointing out old Testament texts, how the Messiah was going to be more than just a King. Um, and so, yeah. And so the transition exists there and, and this will happen multiple times. There's sort of a, a therefore. So therefore, if he's a better messenger, let's pay attention to what he actually gave us as a message that's been attested to, that angels and everybody else are pointing at, that, that, that Christ is the better messenger. So, so let's pay attention to what he ends up saying. 
And this is where we get our first warning. And the warning is to pay attention to the word of God and the finished work of Christ so that you don't drift away. And this is relevant for us today. You cannot think that you can become a Christian and not seek God and that your relationship with God will remain remain close or endure well. Just like in friendships or in marriages, you need to have regular points of connection to continue to grow in relationships. So drifting away when we neglect his word is something that is going to naturally happen. Yeah. And, and, and so what's that message? What, what's the sort of starting point that the author sort of goes to that God came as a human, that God came into human form, uh, that there was one greater and all things that were created through him and all that stuff that we got in the intro, but God lowered him in rank and, and, and made him a little lower, lesser than the angels by, by taking on humanity. And, and in so doing, he suffered, he tasted death, things that would have been unheard of for God to, to go through, <clears throat> but God does through Jesus. And, but this is the way this is that the suffering and death might actually bring us back to him. That's sort of the argument there that, that this is how salvation actually works. And by becoming like us, he, he becomes like us. Family becomes one like us understanding suffering and death. And yet he can conquer death. And this is good news. Our, our God, the God of the universe actually walked through our brokenness in this world, enter our pain, enter our hurt, enter our struggles, and, and, and ultimately becomes victorious over those things. So we have a God also now that we can connect to about all those things. So we have this high priest is not totally removed from us. Like, um, even, even in Israel, the high priest might seem mm-hmm. removed, like he's distant and he's wearing the, the funky outfits and you probably don't even know him or re- understand. I mean, he, maybe he doesn't understand the blue collar world. And the argument here is going, no, no, no. We have a very different kind of high priest in Jesus. One who is merciful and shows mercy, one who's faithful and does the job and one who understands us. So the author connects us here kind of to this idea of the incarnation of Christ becoming man and also this idea of angels. But there's a huge difference. I mean, we the emphasis here is on the humanity of Christ in order to overcome death for all people and for all time. So the angels are our helpers. They are messengers. But Christ is the ultimate one who did it once and for all. We see him as merciful and faithful and the one who makes propitiation for our sins. And let's remember that Jesus suffered when he is tempted and he is able to help those of us, all of us, when we are being tempted. I still sometimes struggle with feeling like Christ can really relate to my own sins or temptations, but here we are reminded and we see that he can. When facing temptation, we need to remember that the Spirit of God dwells within us and we can cry out to him for help. It should be empowering to remember that we have been set free from lifelong slavery to sin and that the one who resisted all temptation is also residing within us. And so through Christ, we also can have grace to resist temptation. And then we get another therefore. So therefore, set your eyes on that. The God that mm-hmm. was like us, who provides salvation for us, the God who became human. And, and guess what? He was faithful in all those things, like like Moses. And Moses was faithful, but he's better than Moses. And like, and, and he uses that analogy of this house, and and like Moses is like a hired hand that might be a servant in the house, and maybe played some role in, in the building of the of the people of God. But but he was simply a servant, just like all the other people. And and that's true. But but Jesus is the owner of the house, and the architect of the house, and the manager of the mm-hmm. house. He is the one over all of it. And, and, and it's important to remember, Moses really had two major roles. I mean, one was to be a prophet. Um, he was to be the, the, the mouthpiece for God to the people. Um, and he had a sort of priestly 
role as sort of the main mediator. He kind of went between God and the people. He had pleaded for them on their behalf, stuff like that. And, and so Jesus here is more faithful in those things. He is a better bringer of the message, which we saw in chapter one, he's, since he's a better he's better than the angels in his message. And he's a better priest, which we saw in chapter two. And so he's a better mediator than, than Moses was. And so the author has already unpacked those things. So when he brings in Moses, we've already seen how that thing got, I mean, it's just the writer of Hebrews is just mind boggling in some of the, the construction that he does or she does. And so um, it just keeps getting unpacked as it goes. Yeah. The imagery here in a, a house I think is really helpful. Cause like Chris said, you picture Moses in God's house and Jesus is over God's house. Moses is serving in God's house and Jesus is a son. So we see him as superior. And now we also know that we are God's temple. We are his family, his nation and his lineage. And then here comes the warning. If we hold fast our confidence and boasting in our hope, we have got to cling to hope and endure when things are hard or when we have questions and trust that just as Christ was faithful over God's house, he will also be faithful over us and even our struggles and doubts and questions. Yeah. Um, and then we get this introduction to this idea of rest and, um, without going into, I mean, if you've been following along the tier Bible, we've, we've covered quite a bit how Sabbath and rest were really central, uh, to, to some of the old Testament text. And, um, even, even dealing with the stuff with Babylon right now, I mean, we pointed out, I think last week or two weeks ago, like the chronicler's reflection on their time in Babylon was that here's, here's what, here's what Babylon accomplished for us the land finally had the rest that, that we were supposed to have. And um, Sabbath becomes like the central lesson related to the Babylonian captivity. And, and so this idea was common. Even even the rabbi camps at the days, uh, Jesus's day, like one of the main arguments, one of the sides, like it was so central that the, the, the greatest commandment would be love the Lord your God and the second one like it was obey the Sabbath. And so um, you had such a central idea to rest and to Sabbath and what does that mean? And so for the author to, to suddenly move into this argument of the rest for God's people um, would make sense, particularly in, in sort of a, a, a very Jewish context. And so, um, and he starts pointing out, remember how our ancestors wandered in the desert? And he quotes Psalm 95, which you had to read this week. Um, he, he has a reference to Numbers 14, where the spies are um, camping out and nobody wants to listen to the spies. There's the Meribah incident uh, as well, where um, they're, they're kind of grumbling around uh, Moses. And, and so you have all these moments where the Israelites God had said, come and enter into this place, enter into this land, rest, have faith, believe in me. And yet it was a struggle and they were grumbling and they rejected and they just didn't listen. And and so I think the author of Hebrews is using that going, okay, we have this message now from Jesus who is speaking to us and we need to listen. And the invitation to enter into God's rest is here. And they had disobedience in the past and it was a struggle, but now by faith, in a unique way, because of faith, we can enter into rest in a way that they never had a chance to really enter into. And and God rests on the seventh day, and he's always invited us into that. But now, by faith, we can enter into that. So we rest from our works as God does his. And I think what's being presented there is actually a piece of the gospel, that when our faith is no longer defined by works and striving and doing all this kind of stuff, but simply by entering into his rest, by resting from our works and trusting in, in, in God's economy, work, then, then we can finally have the rest that we've been called to truly have. And this Sabbath rest is going to be obtained through belief. You know, we talked about it in other Paul's other letters around, uh, we're saved by faith. Um, and some of this belief comes through obedience. So we see that the antidote, or we know that the antidote to unbelief 
also can be accountability and encouragement so we're not hardened by the deceitfulness of sin like the author here talks about. So I think we need to look at this idea of in two different ways. First of all, who is the one or who are the people in your life holding you accountable and encouraging you to press on and hold fast? And secondly, who are you encouraging on to hold fast and who are you holding accountable? This is why we need the family of God and community to hold fast and to continue to receive the rest of God. Yeah, as long as it's called day keep encouraging each other. And, and it's also why we, we keep word centered because we get kind of the last paragraph in this reading where, uh, the exhortation, yes, is to hear his voice and to listen to his word. And the author reminds us this, this word's powerful. It's like a sword and it has the ability to kind of expose our hearts and, 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 um, just as it did back then, it shows us who we really are. So let's strive to enter that rest, knowing we're exposed, we're sinful, we're broken, we're weary people who need rest. And God is offering that rest and, and may the word do its job at, 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 um, cutting, uh, but also providing healing. Mm-hmm. And so jump to Psalms, Psalm 102, or at least the second half of it. Yeah. So we're, again, it's reemphasized that God is eternal and he is unchanging and there are still generations that will praise the Lord, which I yeah. love that. Yeah. God takes care of the oppressed. There's kind of a short little message to that, but there's really definitely an emphasis on his it's eternality. Yeah. yeah. Um, Psalm 95, uh, which you read half of just reading Hebrews. Yeah, so we seem to be following a theme of God's power over creation, too. We worship because He is our God. And what beauty in the possessiveness of God being my God. I belong to Him and He to me. Uh, But don't forget to enter His rest. Yes, make sure (laughs) to not avoid entering His rest. And then Psalm 64. We see a comparison between the wicked and the righteous here. It feels like a psalm kind of about the Babylonian judgment. The righteous in Christ can rejoice. We know where our refuge is. Yeah, those who put their confidence in themselves are going to be dealt with as well. Mm -hmm. So next week, what should we look out for? So the Bible Project video on Lamentations refers to it as a poetic reflection on the siege and the exile of Jerusalem. So I'd encourage you to think about like what is a modern day parallel or a New Testament parallel? How can we connect the gospel of Jesus Christ to the book of Lamentations as you read it? Uh, So think about Lamentations through the lens of the gospel. And in the New Testament, the author is going to quote quite a bit from Jeremiah 31, which we recently read about the new covenant. So think back to what Jeremiah said. Go back and read it. What is the author of Hebrews getting at here in this Jeremiah reference? Yeah, and as you read uh, Lamentations, uh, I think I think you read four out of the five chapters next week. Mm-hmm. Um, Lamentations is one large chiasm. And as you're reading, look for it. And if you, once you do, try to find, because you, you're going to read enough of it to, to catch it. Um, and when you do, look at what the center of the whole chiasm of the Book of Lamentations is, because I think it'll change probably how you really should think about the book um, and, and what the what the author is drawing your attention to in, in these laments. Uh, and then the new Testament, uh, the writer of Hebrews takes the next three chapters, um, to, to kind of paint how Jesus was made perfect through suffering, or he's taken the first three chapters to kind of paint, um, that Jesus was made perfect through suffering. He's the source of eternal salvation. He, and, and we'll see next week. Um, he's the high order in the priest of Melchizedek, but then he's going to spend the next few chapters that we're going to read through unpacking those, but in reverse. So see if you can catch what the author is doing as he sort of unpacks each of those ideas. Uh, the Melchizedek one's the most obvious one, but then the source of eternal salvation and then the perfect through suffering. What is the author connecting as he sort of set up these arguments, um, to help us understand exactly who Jesus is and what he accomplished. All right. That's it for me this week. Thanks Thanks. y'all.